Church season of Lent, preparing for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday. Today I will be teaching from Exodus 17. The title of my message is Life or Death in the Wilderness. Exodus chapter 17, starting with verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the rod you stuck the Nile with in your hand, struck, excuse me, struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this at the side of the elders of Israel. He named that place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord for us today. Well, I want to talk about the wilderness. That's kind of been the theme today in our music and in our prayers and in the scriptures. A lot of us have been through the wilderness before. And maybe some of us are in the wilderness right now. But I want to remind you of something. Just because you have been in the wilderness, or maybe you're currently in the wilderness, doesn't mean you've done something wrong, or doesn't mean that you're outside of God's will. Because God uses wilderness experiences, or he uses certain eras of our life that feel like the wilderness where things are not as fruitful. He uses challenging terrain. He is working within that. And we see that as we organize Exodus 17 over four points today, here's the first point that I want you to be aware of, and if you're following on the outline, you can write this down, is that in the wilderness, there is an inevitability of adversity. Inevitability. I didn't have trouble the first service saying that, so I don't know why. Too many words. It's inevitable that a time of adversity will come. This is so important for us to remember because a lot of us are shocked at the adversity in our life. We're, we're in a desert season and we're like, where's the water? Right? Well, water is not easy to find in the desert. Water isn't plentiful in the desert. Why should we be surprised that during desert seasons we need water? But th there's a part of us that we're shocked when challenging times come. There's a part, a part of us that we're caught off guard when something difficult happens. And I'm here to encourage you this morning and remind you that it's inevitable that tough times are going to come. Jesus said himself, in this world you'll have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. The reason I can encourage you that to expect or anticipate or to realize adversity is going to come, the reason I can 
say this is encouraging to us today is because we know that because of Jesus that the adversity we have is temporary. The wilderness is not forever. The challenge is not forever. And even when we're in the middle of a challenge, God is at work. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, says this. Very, very, very powerful scripture. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. This is turning wisdom of the world upside down, is it not? We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that afflictions produce endurance. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been made known. God's love has, let me find it here with us. Looks like we got a little bit of a lag this morning in our multimedia. This hope is not because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this hopefulness comes, this hopeful life that comes. Why does this hopeful life come? It's because of the gospel. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that we can have hope during difficult times, the reason that we're not going to be caught off guard when trouble comes our way, is because God has settled our salvation with him. We know that we're part of a bigger story. We're part of a bigger issue, that even though we have temporary problems and temporary issues and temporary challenges, that what Jesus has done for us, his death and his resurrection, means that there's a bigger story happening and something bigger that's occurring. Here's an issue that some of us have. When tough time comes, we think it shouldn't happen to us. When something difficult happens to us, we immediately start looking for the reason instead of looking for the solution. When we kind of have this immature mindset, man, bad stuff's not supposed to happen to me. It's okay if it happens to someone else, but when it happens to me, I'm not supposed to go through this. I'm not supposed to go through this challenge. That kind of immature mindset doesn't prepare us for the wilderness or doesn't prepare us for the desert. And to remind you of this, I want to tell you about something called Toy Story. Have you ever heard about this great fictional work, Toy Story? Well, Toy Story was a huge hit that launched the Pixar company. It positioned them to... Um, really change animation and also position them to be bought out by Disney. And so this, this movie Toy Story just caught everybody off guard. Now that Toy Story was a success, Toy Story 2 was coming out. And there was a lot of pressure to make Toy Story 2 successful. So hundreds of people were working on this project. And the story of that Ed Catmull tells a story in the book, Creativity, Inc., and he's telling the story of this. He is the, the, was a CEO of Pixar, and he may currently be also. And he, he's telling the story about this great collaboration that's happening, this great desire to make Toy Story 2 meet the expectations. It won't just be a freshman phenomena and, and not have the sophomore jinx, but Toy Story 2 would be effective. And there was a glitch within 
the program that if you hit the buttons just right, the programmer made it to where all of the collaborative work would disappear. Now, I would be that person who somehow would find those combinations of keyboard strokes. But it wasn't me, but someone else did this and erased all of the work that went on Toy Story 2. And so within a couple of hours, like panic came to the corporation. They're thinking, what are we going to do? And, and, and they're gathering together and all kinds of panics happening. I want to read a portion of this because it was, it was just so descriptive of what happened. Catmull said this, not just some of the files, all of the data that made up the pictures, the objects to the backgrounds, from lighting to shading, was dumped out of the system. First, Woody's hat disappeared. Then his boots. Then he disappeared entirely. One by one, the other characters begin to vanish too. Buzz, Mr. Potato Head, Ham, Rex, whole sequences. Poof, they were deleted from the drive. Well, you can imagine what panic would have come across this company. But then good news happened. About an hour into the discussion, Galen Suzman, the movie supervising technical director, remembered something. Wait, she said, I might have a backup on my home computer. About six months before, Galen had her second baby, which required that she spend more of her time working from home, which those of you who are managers, work with the pregnant ladies. It can help you in the long run. <laughs> All the sisters say amen to that, right? To make that process more convenient, she set up a system that copied the entire film database to her home computer automatically once a week. So they rushed over and they, they found, uh, got her computer. They said they escorted it back to Pixar uh, like it was uh, the crown jewel and, and were able to restore hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of work. So Catmull tells a story and I tell it now to you because I want you to look at this quote and, and here's the moral of the story according to him. The real lesson of the event though was in how we dealt with its aftermath. In short, we didn't waste time playing the blame game. After the loss of the film, our list of priorities in order were restore the film, fix our backup systems, install precautionary restrictions to make it much more difficult to access the deletion command directly. Notably, one item was not on our list, finding the person responsible who typed the wrong command and punish him or her. A lot of us we are in a wilderness where unexpected disaster has come. And we're so busy trying to figure out who to blame that we're not getting on the solution side of the issue. You're dying in the wilderness because you're too busy living in shock over the event instead of getting to the steps to find victory from the negative event, to find a pathway to healing a pathway to something better. And this applies in a lot of different ways. Um, recently, in the last 10 days, one of my children lost their notebook that had all their school events. I won't tell you who it is, but you have a 33% chance of guessing since I have three kids. And panic ensued in our house. And this unnamed teenager, he or she, went into panic mode. And, and I have this desire to, to have empty spaces on platforms like the dining room table. My children don't cooperate with this desire. So 
I often take stuff and restack it and reorganize it because even though there may be chaos in a house of three teenagers, there can be one clean space that is like a place of serenity for me. And so I'd take this stuff and stack it. So immediately when stuff is missing in the house, I get all of the blame. I'm falsely accused. It's, Dad, where did you put my notebook? I'm like, I didn't touch the thing. I didn't touch the thing. So blame is coming to me of where I put the notebook. And then my better half here, my partner in life, she, she, begins, to, she begins to say, well, let's relive the process. She's trying to get us on a solution side. Let's go back. All of this angst is going on. I'm like, I didn't touch your notebook. Yes, you did. I didn't mess with it. You always do. We're going back and forth. And finally, Beth comes in and says, let's get on the solution side. Let's re trace her steps. And like a great mother says, she begins to talk calm into the situation. She said, it's going to be there. It's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, we can talk to the teachers. We can buy another notebook. We can photocopy what we need to. In the end, that if we focus on the blame, we never get to the solution. So we, we had to get to the solution side of it. And spiritually, I think some of us need to get to that place too. Some of us need to Quit living in shock that something bad happened to us and instead say, God, what's the pathway you have for us? Where do you want us to go? Because in the desert, what, what begins to happen is we begin to demand, make demands of God that lead to grumbling. Demands that lead to God with grumbling. A lot of times this has to do with time sequence. We begin to say, God, you have to come through at a certain time. Number two, if we're able to put it up is, Demands that lead to grumbling. Demands that lead to grumbling. God, you have to do this. You have to come through in the timeline that I've set. You have to provide this for me. We have a very selfish relationship with God to say, God, if you don't provide this for me, or you don't provide a relationship for me, or if you don't provide a certain amount of funds for me, or if you don't come through for me, God, in a certain amount of time, I'm out. Like, I'm not serving you, God, or I'm withholding my heart. And when we do that, we're God then. We're not submitting to God. We're not trusting God. We're putting ourselves in the position as God. Look at verse 2 of Acts 17 again. Verse 2 said, made things very, very clear to us. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? I want to remind you of something today, or maybe it's something that you, you need to hear for the first time, is that when you complain to God, it's a sign of not trusting God. A lot of us are trying to manipulate God by complaining to him, and, and, and our prayers are really a complaint session. And this is, you're testing God's character, you're grumbling against God's character, and the Lord wants to change your heart on this. The Lord wants to change your heart on this situation. And this was such a part of the Jewish faith, the Jewish faith from which we have sprung, that they would actually sing about this story. They would sing about them, this story, to remind them not to harden their hearts, to remind them not to complain against God, to remind them not to grumble. Psalm 95, starting with verse 8, this is what it says. Do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah. This is a direct, direct song directly referring to to the scripture today in Exodus 17. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness. 
where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Let's just stop there for a second. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. These were people who had seen God move through the plagues to deliver them from 400 years of slavery. This is people who had seen God part the Red Sea and brought them in out of, out of the place of captivity, and yet they couldn't trust God when they got thirsty. They couldn't trust God when the water wasn't plentiful. And look how we're the same. We're, we're the same because we're like, we have a God who has set us free from the chains of sin. We have a God who's written our names in the Lamb's book of life and have given us an eternity in heaven. And we have the assurance of our faith in Him and we have the assurance of eternity with Him. We have a God who has done what is impossible with man. God has provided us a salvation that we can't produce ourselves. But yet we don't trust God with the little things. We don't trust God when we get a little bit thirsty. Listen, all of us go through adversity. I had some major adversity yesterday because my accountant called me, told me how much money I owed on my taxes. I haven't really told you that, Beth. We're going to have that talk after lunch today. He called me. I was on my phone. I was like, oh, man, you kidding me? Oh, no. And I hang up, and Luke, my 15-year-old my son's like, who was that? What's going on? And I said, well, son, it's something we'll just deal with later. Uh, hey, that was some bad news. Bad news that, that I, uh, I owe a lot more money than I thought I would. Now, we, we have the money, and we're okay. This isn't like the pastor sideway, um, you know, approach. I don't need any extra money. Whenever you tell stories like this, you have to be careful. I'm not dropping any hints. We're taken care of. We, we've got a, a good year ahead of us. And frankly, I've enjoyed the money throughout the year, making more money. And I've enjoyed the government not taking my money the last 12 months. So we'll make it all even. But here's the deal. That wasn't a fun phone call to get. But I didn't go into some kind of emotional pit and say, I can't get out of bed this morning. And I'm not going to go to church. And God doesn't love me. I didn't get a tax return this year. Oh, God. I'm in the wilderness. I'm just going to die here. Uh, God, I, I, I can't spend money on what I want to. I'm not, now, I know that there's a clinical depression. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a, a, I'm talking about a immature perspective. An immature perspective that every little thing that go wrong, goes wrong with us, we go into panic. Guys, we're in a world that's troubled, and we've got tough stuff we've got to go through. And life doesn't always work out perfectly for us. I'm going to tell you this. If you ever want to have a relationship in your life, any type of relationship, not just a, a spouse, but friends, a relationship with your children, I'm just going to tell you right away, you will get your feelings hurt. Period. Every relationship has a risk. And in every relationship, negative things are going to occur. We can't let something negative like us make us die in the desert. We, we can't let the inevitable, I said it right, the inevitable adversity that comes to our life throw us off. We have to be prepared to know that because we are sons and daughters of Jesus, of God, uh, because we're people who understand the gospel, 
that this Jesus did something for us that we can't do for ourselves. That we've discovered the great meta-narrative of our, of our world and our life. That, that the story of God redeeming his people, he's invited us into the story. And the power of the resurrection is in our life. It doesn't matter if the car breaks down. It doesn't matter if we owe a little bit on taxes. It doesn't matter if someone hurts our feelings. Whatever comes our way, we're going to get through it. We're going to move through the desert. Even when we're abandoned, even when people uh, talk bad about us, even when people misunderstand us, we're moving through and we're moving through the desert and we're not going to die in the desert because Jesus is there in the desert with us. So this is, this is that spirit of grumbling that gets upon us where we just complain about everything. Who does this? All of us. I mean, the reason I can preach about this stuff is because I've done most of this stuff. I've grumbled. I've complained against God. I've been upset with God. I've been like, God, why does good stuff happen to this person and bad stuff happen to me? Or God, why, why didn't I get this opportunity? Or why don't, and all of that is just immaturity. It, it really is. It's not trusting what Romans 5, 3 and 4 says. That any affliction we're going to rejoice in because God is building character and he's building endurance. And because of the gospel, we're going to get through the temporary challenge. And we're not going to stay in the desert. We're not going to die in the desert. We're passing through the desert to a promised land. Even if we're in the desert longer than we anticipated, God knows where we're at. And he's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to be right there with us. Third observation is this. In the desert, we need humble but decisive leadership. This is a little extra I wanted to talk to you about today, but I believe God may be speaking to you about this because uh, this, this subject of leadership, let's just make it real simple. Every one of you is a leader, and every one of you needs to have a leader in your life. Every one of you is a leader, and every one of you needs a leader in your life. A lot of times, the reason that we haven't, we haven't stepped into some of the leadership roles that we would desire, not the, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is, is because we haven't been humble enough to let other people lead us. Because you can't be a great leader until you've been led. And leadership, we wrongly believe that leadership is just being at the top of the organizational chart. But every one of you are a leader even if you've never had a position on the organizational chart where people are under you. In fact, in the kingdom of God, if you're at the bottom of the organizational chart, you're in a position to lead like Jesus, because Jesus said the last will be first. Jesus said that those who really want to lead spiritually must be a servant to all. And so it is that we're in the desert as we need to have self-leadership, we need to find good leadership, and we need to be good leaders in the desert. You know, it's easy to be a leader when everything's going well. It's tough to be a leader when things, are, when, when, when things aren't going well. It's tough to be a leader when people need direction. But in the desert, in the wilderness, is a time for your leadership instincts to kick in, to develop, and for you to be led by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love how Moses responded in Acts 17, starting with verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? This is the, hum the humble part of leadership. Last week, I, if you heard my sermon last week, I, I emphasized a simple point of this, is that some of you need to start asking God more, asking God to intervene in your life. This is a companion to that point. Some of us need to ask God what to do with the people in our life. 
what should I do with these people, Lord? Lord, what should I do with these people? Maybe it's your people, your, your family, your children, or it could be people you work with, or people you're in small group with, or, or a team that you're coaching or part of, or your children are part of. What, what should I do with these people? What, what, what should I do? God, would you lead me? The humility to say, God, be my leader. God, show me what to do. And here's what happens is when we have the humility to ask, God may show us the unconventional. When I say unconventional, I didn't say the unscriptural because God never violates his word. When I say the unconventional, it doesn't mean that we don't, we don't include our community in that decision because I believe that including our community in our decision is an important part of how God speaks to us. And I don't make major decisions in my life until the people that I'm in community with have given their insight to me and have prayed with me about it. But within the boundaries of Scripture and even within the boundaries of the advice of the community, sometimes God may ask you to do the unconventional. What he asks Moses to do is to take the rod in the middle of the desert and to go to a rock and to hit the rock. How many know this isn't really the strategy, the strategy to bring water to people, but it's what the word of the Lord was to him. And so what Moses, Moses did is he, he humbly did that. And the Lord answered, go on ahead of the people. And I'll just tell you this, is that leadership's not what you write down on paper. Leadership is what you incarnate in your heart, in your life. It's your lifestyle. Leadership is not about writing down five or six good points. Leadership is showing the way. So Moses said, go ahead of the people. And I want to tell you that in the relationships that really matter in your life, you have to go ahead of the people. You can't tell people what to do. You have to show people what to do. Don't just tell your kids to pray and ask for God's wisdom. Let them see you pray and ask for God's wisdom. See, secret prayer is something Jesus taught us. It taught us the attitude and spirit of secret prayer. But also there's a time where a principle is go ahead of the people and take some of the elders with you take, and, and so they can see what's happening. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand in front of you in the rock. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people would drink. And Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He did this so God would get the glory. He was humble enough to ask God what to do, and he was courageous enough to actually do it. We ask, and then we act. We seek, and then we respond. We don't just hear the word, we hear the word, and we do the word. So I'm encouraging you in this wilderness that you may be in, and this wilderness that others are in, that you're leading them out of, ask God what to do and then do it. How about that? Ask God what to do and then do it. Be the agent of change God is calling. So what did, what did he do? What did Moses get from all of this? What did Moses get? Here's my, my last point. Moses got an awareness of the presence of God. Awareness of God's presence. And we'll, we'll read these passages one more time so that we can, get, we, we can get the full scope of what God's doing. This is a powerful statement, verse 6. This is what the Lord said. I'm going to stand there in front of you. I'm going to go there in front of you on the rock. 
Moses asked God for help. God told him what to do. And then God said, I'm going for you. I'm going in front of you. I'm going to stand ahead of you in that place, in that place of provision. I'm going to stand in front of you. You're not alone in the desert. God says, I hear you in the desert. I will instruct you in the desert. And then God's not going to fold his arms and just watch and see how it goes. God's going to go before us and he's going to meet us at the place of provision. He's going to meet us at the place of action. He's going to meet us at the place where we do the unconventional and we strike the rock and there the water comes. Because God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't left you alone in the wilderness. God's not unaware of your situation. God's not caught off guard by your challenge. God does not know, does not, not know what to do exactly what to do. And he is going before you in that place. And he's here to remind you this morning that you're not going to die in the wilderness. You're not going to die in the desert because he's going to meet you at that place and he's going to provide the water that you need. He's going to provide the life that you need. That's who our God is. And all of this, I know a lot of this, again, is practical things about decision-making and positioning ourselves, but it all leads back to the gospel it all leads back to the gospel message because Jesus was talking with a woman at the well and he was talking to the woman at the well and, and she was a woman who had lots of sin in her life and it's a great story that you can read in John chapter 4 but this is what Jesus said to the woman, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 starting with verse 13 Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again but whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. I want you to stand with me as we pray. We go to a place of prayer. Here's the story that Jesus says. Exodus 17 was pointing towards the gospel story. Exodus 17 was pointing towards living water. Our natural thirst is pointing towards our spiritual thirst. And Jesus, who is the rock of our salvation, Jesus was the rock of our salvation. He meets us in our wilderness of sin. And He meets us at the place where we're not fruitful spiritually. And He meets us at the place that is arid and dry. And He being our rock, He being our rock is the one from whom life flows. When Jesus voluntarily laid down his life, he voluntarily uh, gave his life on the cross and he was nailed to the cross and a crown of thorns were put, was put on upon his head. And there he was being mocked. And at his death, the Roman soldiers took a spear to make sure he was dead. And they threw it in his side. And if you know the scripture, out of his side, this rock, this Jesus, what flowed out of his side? Blood and what? Blood and water flowed out of his side. Exodus 17 was pointing us to the great gospel story, the great narrative of the world, that Jesus is redeeming the world. And why did I tell you this? It's because what Jesus did on the cross and Jesus, his resurrection is a sign to us that whatever we're going through, God's going to take us through. He's going to get you through financial trouble. He's going to get you through marriage problems. He's going to get you through singleness. He's going to get you through that rebellious child. The Lord is going to be with you when you feel like you're at a dead-end job. Listen, guys, don't give up. You're not going to die in the desert. You're not going to die of thirst. You're not going to die of dehydration because there's water.
that's flowing from an unexpected source. And this is what the Lord wants you to know today, that his, his, the breakthrough is at an unexpected place. It's a place that some say you're going to die at that place, but the Lord says there's new life there. there new, there's new water. And the story isn't just about you. It's not just about your survival. It's not just about you getting through the desert. And it's not just getting you through the wilderness. It's a foreshadowing of the story for the whole world. Your story is His story. Our God is faithful to you. He's going to come through because when He comes through for you, it's a sign to the world that the gospel, that Jesus is redeeming the world. Jesus is overcoming the wilderness of sin. Jesus is bringing us into a promised land. And because he's doing that for the world, he's going to do it for you. Whatever you face, be encouraged today. You will get through it. You will get through it. And life is coming from an unexpected source. A stream will flow again. The water will flow again. There's a new flow from the Lord that's coming again. I want to pray with you right now. I want to pray with you, Father. In Jesus' name, I thank you for a new life. And whatever, there's something in your life that you have said is dead. You have said, this is dead, it's gone. Death is there. The Lord wants you to know that there is. There is a stream that's coming from an unexpected source. This is a sign to you. This is a sign of the gospel message. Jesus was an unlikely, unlikely person that God, God would, the world would have picked. But God chose Jesus as one who was unlikely to redeem the world. So it is that the Lord may pick something unlikely for you to bring life to you again. It's an unexpected source. It's an unexpected stream. But the Lord is bringing that back to your life. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, that we will not die in the desert. There, there, is, there is life in the desert. You will not die in the desert. You will not die. This is a proclamation. The Lord's proclaiming this over you. You will not shrink and die because life is coming. When you least suspect it, there's life that's coming. And Lord, we believe that by faith. We believe that by faith right now. Father, we begin to recenter ourselves upon you and your work, and what you've done on the cross and how you've worked in us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for that. We praise you this day, Father. You're a great, great God. We wait upon you right now. Lord, we, we wait upon you and what you want to do in us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for releasing your heart. For releasing your heart here. The Lord is releasing his heart upon you. The heart of the Lord is so much, it's so powerful. It's not, it's not the law of the Lord as much as it's the heart of the Lord the heart of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for, for your redemptive work. You're redeeming many situations here, many circumstances. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. Earlier uh, during our worship, we said a prayer together. And I was so excited because I knew where all the scriptures were going today and how, how this prayer was a it was a forerunner. It was a first fruit. It was a proclamation of what you would receive from the word today. But I want us to pray this prayer again. And, and I want you to look at these words with me. And if you're willing, we can pray these words now. Same words we prayed earlier, but it's now the same together. God of the wilderness, you go before us and await our coming. May our desire for you compel us beyond complaint to conversation beyond rejection to relationship. Pour your love into our hearts so that when we are refreshed and renewed, we may invite others to the living water given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.